Thank you, Pastor Mark, for that prayer supplication. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. A couple of weeks ago, I began laying some foundation, some groundwork for what I hope to be an enjoyable and informative and inspiring walk through this beautiful Gospel. And um, as we think about the Gospel according to Luke, of course, we have the Gospel of Mark and Matthew and John. And they all, in their respective ways, have differences, even though they're telling the same story. The word gospel comes from the Anglo-Saxon word Godspell, which literally means it's a story about God. But also we find the word in the Greek, euangelion, which means good news. And we oftentimes think about that. In fact, we draw our word for evangelism from that Greek word, euangelion, which is the good news. But you know, we can't appreciate the good news until we focus on the bad news. And, and I'll be taking you back in the Old Testament into God's word to help us to lay a, a, a groundwork for which we can build upon as we walk through the Gospel of Luke. And in doing so, I hope to show you uh, three points. First of all, a promise that is preserved, a prayer that is answered, and then a prophecy that is fulfilled. First of all, let's talk about this promise that is preserved. And I invite you, if you want to turn all the way to back, back in your Bibles to Genesis in chapter 3, you'll recall that probably the darkest moment in human history or at least one of the darkest moments was the fall of man into sin, Adam and Eve, when they disobeyed God. And God is pronouncing the curse upon the serpent. And in chapter 3, verse 15, now, you, you have to understand that the serpent is a creature who is empowered by a diabolical power we know as Satan. So God is cursing, first of all, in this passage, beginning in verse 14, God is cursing the actual servant, uh, serpent, the creature. But by the time he gets to verse 15, the curse is now directed and God is looking square into the eyes of his diabolical adversary, Satan. And this is the curse that God is pronouncing upon the, the, the spiritual serpent, if you will, Satan. And, and of course, Satan represents sin. And he represents all that sin entails. And so with that, he is, he is pronouncing a curse upon Satan. But within this verse, verse, three, or verse 15, chapter 3 of Genesis, there is embedded the first reference to the good news. The promise of God. Because he says to the serpent Satan, and he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your seed, in other words, all of your demons and all those who follow and worship you, and her seed, and in my New King James translation, seed is capitalized so as to speak of divinity. In other words, this is the first glimpse that we have that the good news, the hope that God has given, the promise that God has given, is that one day He will send forth one who will break the curse of sin. That Satan embodies and Satan manipulated and caused humanity to fall into. And it would be in the seed of woman. And the reference to the seed of woman tells us there, this is not an ordinary person who will come forth as a champion of those who choose to believe. 
He will be the seed of woman, not the seed of man, which implies the immaculate conception, the virgin birth. And and of course, we know he's speaking of Christ. He goes on to say in this announcement upon Satan, he says, he, speaking of Christ, the deliverer, the Messiah, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Or you'll pester him. You'll tempt him. You'll seek to manipulate him, God says. But one day, he will crush your head. He will destroy the hold that you have on mankind through sin. And hence begins the, the journey of God preserving this wonderful promise. Even under, He went on to pronounce a curse upon the woman. He went on to pronounce a curse upon the man. And every person born thereafter was born under the curse of sin. And what I want you to see as we look through the Old Testament is that God, Almighty, eternal, sovereign God, is a God who preserves His promises. Because His promises are not dependent upon us. The fulfillment of His promises are not dependent upon our strength and our ability. Thank God. Because we rely upon the promises of God. Do we not? I thank God for the promises of God. And, and God will preserve this promise. So from the fall in chapter 3, we know in chapter 6 that God looked upon the earth as if it began to spiral downwards. Mankind began to spiral downwards in, into hideous sins God regretted. And then they announced the judgment upon the world. In, in Genesis chapter 6, we saw this in our Old Testament studies, in our Christian growth group classes, God brought forth the judgment upon the world that would destroy every living creature upon the face of the earth, except those that God mercifully spared, including Noah and his wife and his three sons and their wives and two of every creature on the face of the earth in that ark that God supernaturally devised. And so out of that story, we find that Noah and his three sons and his wife and and, and the wives of his sons survived. And as we go further in Genesis chapter 12, we see that the Bible describes that Noah's, one of Noah's three sons, Shem, In his genealogy, one of his descendants, generations later, would be a man by the name of Terah. And Terah lived in the land of Ur. And Terah had a son by the name of Abram. And you may recall that because you just studied it in Christian growth group. And in chapter 12, in verse 2, God said to this man who possessed the ability to believe and trust in God, to, to have faith in God. And the Bible tells us that Abram's faith was accounted to him as righteousness and made him right in the eyes of God. And God singled him out among all the people on the face of the earth. And he said to Abraham in chapter 12, verse 2 and 3, he says, Abraham, I'm going to make a great nation of you. I'm going to make your name great and you will be blessed and you will be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and I will curse those who curse you and in you all the families of the earth. Did you get that? Not just the Jews. God says, in you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so, of course, we saw that from Abraham, though his wife, Sarah, and, they, and he were a far in age, uh, they, and she was barren, God blessed them with a, a miracle boy. 
His name is Isaac, and Isaac had a son, two sons, Jacob and Esau. We just saw that in our Christian growth group, and we see that how the story develops. Abraham wasn't perfect, he sinned. Isaac wasn't perfect, he sinned. Jacob, Isaac's son, was not perfect, he was a trickster, he sinned. Despite the sins of these patriarchs, out of that came the, the, the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. God was still preserving His promise issued all the way back in the third chapter of Genesis. And so we see the 12 tribes, the sons of Jacob that became the tribes of Israel as they sojourned into Egypt. And this story is familiar to you because in the book of Exodus, 400 years later, we find the descendants of Abraham, the descendants of Jacob, the Israelites, the Jews that are living in the land of Egypt, but they're not living in luxury now because they're under the harsh dictatorship of a Pharaoh who has subjected them into bondage of slavery. They are misery. They cry out to God. And in Exodus in chapter 3, God raises up a deliverer by the name of Moses who would deliver, deliver God's people from the harsh bondage of the Egyptian slavery. And, and, and they would be miraculously delivered from the land of Egypt and out from under the Pharaoh's rule and out into the wilderness where God would establish His covenant with them, making them the people of God and giving to them the perfect law of God, which we know as we look at the track record of the Israelites and all the, all the generations later and up to us even today, nobody can live perfectly according to the teachings of the covenant. But he gave his law and God's people over and over, as you well know, in the story in Exodus, they continually, sinfully disobeyed God. They rebelled against God. They are in the wilderness. And finally, when Moses had died, God raised up his successor by the name of Joshua. And in the book of Joshua, we see the, the descendants of Abraham who are now moving into and occupying and displacing the residents of the, of the land of Canaan, now as we know is promised land and they are there in the promised land that God had promised Abraham would be the homeland of his descendants where he would make them a great nation. But you see, even at, with that, even being in the promised land, even having seen God work so miraculously in their lives, they continue to turn their backs on God. They continue to sin. They continue to practice apostasy. They begin to adopt idolatry from, from the remnants of the pagan nations around them. And, and there was a cycle in the book of Judges that tells us that the people of God, the, the descendants of Abraham, who are still under the promise of God, would continually go through a cycle where they would obey God, yet then they would sin against God, and God would chastise them, they would cry out, God would raise up a judge, a champion to deliver them, and then they would obey God, but then they'd fall back into sin. Kind of sounds like Christians today, doesn't it? And yet in the midst of that miserable cycle of sin and repentance and coming back to God, and sin and repentance and coming back to God, God maintained and preserved His wonderful promise. At the end of that vicious cycle, God realized it was time to raise up men who could lead the nation as kings. And through in the books of First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings, we see that God was raising up great men like Saul who would indeed be leaders of the nation of Israel and they began to become a powerful nation under the leadership of Saul. But more importantly, David, who was the best and the greatest of the kings of Israel because he was a man after God's own heart. But guess what Saul sinned? Saul disobeyed God. David disobeyed God. Even David's son Solomon, who was at the pinnacle of Israel's prominence and wealth and power, and yet they sinned, and the sin affected their family. 
the monarchy of Israel, and it wasn't long as we move further into First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles, we see that the people of God are on a spiritual roller coaster, as they have one evil king after another. Once in a while, maybe a righteous leader, the nation divided. We know that the first that the, the, the ten tribes to the north formed the nation of Israel. The two tribes that remain in Judah and Benjamin formed the nation of Judah. And yet, despite the fact that they call themselves the people of God, under the, the wicked leadership of, of evil kings, they fell into sin. And finally, God uh, had had enough. The apostate and evil, wicked kings of the nation of Israel brought them to the brink of God's judgment. And we know in the record of the scriptures in 722 B.C. that God raised up the mighty, barbaric and powerful sadistic army of the Assyrians and they moved into, swept across the land of Israel, the northern ten tribes, destroying everything in sight, obliterating that, that nation, if you will, and taking the captives into captivity. They would never be reestablished as a nation. Things didn't fare even a whole lot better, though God was more merciful to the, to the nation to the south, to Judah, the remnant of God's people now, descendants of Abraham. They had a few more spiritual kings, kings who were faithful, righteous kings, and they avoided God's judgment for a while, but eventually, through their own sinful rebellion against God, very much like their cousins to the north, God finally allowed the Babylonian army under Nebuchadnezzar to come into the region of Judah and did the unthinkable, at least in the eyes and the minds of the Jews. In 586 B.C., the Babylonian army, like a mighty crushing machine, seized the city of Jerusalem, the blessed holy city, tore down its walls, tore down its dwelling places, the palaces, killed people uh, indiscriminately, young, old, didn't matter. They destroyed the very temple of Jehovah. And took the choices of the remnants of the people of, the, of God, Abraham's descendants, into captivity, into Babylon, in a foreign land. And we know through the book of Daniel, we know that through that experience and through the prophecies of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, that for 70 years God's people were totally displaced from the land that God had promised them. It would be their homeland in there in the foreign location of Babylon. They continued to yearn for that day that God would fulfill the words of his prophet Jeremiah and he would deliver them from captivity and allow them to return home. Well, we know that God is all this time through the rebellion and the disobedience of his people. God continues to maintain and preserve a promise that he gave to the first man and woman, and to humanity all the way back in chapter 3. God is preserving the promise because He's preserving the very people through whom He would carry out this promise. Listen, all along, don't think that God's not speaking. At every turn, like a caring, loving parent, He is giving warning. He's sending word from His prophets Isaiah and Jeremiah, Ezekiel. He's warning these people, his people, of his impending judgment upon them. But that's not the only word that God gave through his prophets. 
God didn't just warn them that one day he would bring judgment upon them if they did not turn from their disobedience and and sinful living. God gave them a word of hope. He reminded them of the promise. And in the words of, of Isaiah, he said that there is coming one who will be the anointed Messiah. His name will be the mighty God. His name will be the Prince of Peace. And he is still out there. And God is saying through the words of the prophet, sure, things are dismal. You are paying a terrible price for your sinful decisions and your actions. But God says, my promise is still intact. The Messiah is still coming. God said through the prophet Jeremiah, there will come a day when my kingdom will be established. And you will be my people again. And you won't have my law as a covenant in stone, but I will put it on your hearts of flesh. And I will live in you and you in me. God said, that day is still coming. And we know that in God's word, after 70 years in exile in Babylon, God raised up through Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, those great saints who helped to restore hope to his people. And God worked through pagan kings like Cyrus of Persia to send remnants of the Jews back to Jerusalem. Of course, it was desolated and, and, and decimated and, and in absolute destruction. But under the direction of prophets like Zerubbabel and, and others, Ezra, God began to give instructions for them to begin to rebuild the city stone by stone and to actually rebuild a, 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 a scaled-down version of the glorious temple of God so that they would have a, peop- a place to worship God again. They were home. And even through the darkness and the struggles, God protected them from those adversaries that would attempt to to destroy them and to annihilate the Jews from the face of the earth as we saw in that lovely story of Esther. And then in the 5th century B.C., somewhere around 530 B.C., God is speaking again to the remnant of the people who are there in the rebuilt Jerusalem, worshiping in the scaled-down temple of Zerubbabel, if you will. And they're still falling into sin. And God is still warning them through Zechariah and Malachi and Haggai, faithful prophets, God is sending powerful messages of warning to the apostate, evil, civic, and religious leaders, the scribes and the priests who are misleading the people of God. And He's warning them, there's coming a day. And as we read in our responsive reading in the book of Malachi, which is the last of the Old Testament prophets in chapter 4 God says through this prophet this is some 500 years if you will before Christ will show up on the scene he says for behold the day is coming burning like an oven and all the proud yes all who do wickedly will be stubble and the day which is coming shall burn them up says the Lord of hosts They will leave leave them neither root nor branch. But, verse 2, but to you who fear my name, 
The Son of Righteousness capitalized so as to imply that this is the Messiah. The Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in His wings. We read that together. And you shall go out and grow fat like stall-fed calves. You shall trample the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day that I do this, says the Lord of hosts. Do you hear what God is saying? Sure, the majority of the people of the nation of Israel who have gone back to Jerusalem and rebuilt the temple and are now worshiping God, and, and, and the majority of those may, may be living sinful and disobediently, especially the leaders, and God is warning them there's judgment. I'm going to judge you. There is judgment to come. But to the remnant, the faithful, and in every generation, in every era, God has preserved a remnant of His people for which He will bestow the promise that He's preserving. In verse 4, He says, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, look at the, this very carefully, verse 5. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, Hold it, Pastor. Elijah died a long time ago. At least he was caught up with the chariot of fire. Before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. Lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. God is saying to those who have turned their backs on him who were supposed to be the children of God. Yes, they were descendants of Abraham, but they're not God's people. And God is saying, there's a day, a terrible day coming for you and I will bring my judgment upon you. But to the remnant who continued to believe and doggedly held on to their faith, God is saying through the prophet Malachi, I made a promise. And I never break my promises. And with that, the Word of God was closed. The last words from God were words of warning, words of promise. And for 400 years, 400 years, heaven is completely silent. No prophets, no spokesmen from God. And Israel is going through a tumultuous time, one empire after another, sweeping through the region, subjecting them, whether it be the, the Persians or the Greeks, and then the Romans, sometimes the Syrians, even the Egyptians get in on the act. They've been tossed around. So it's a time of turmoil. It's a time of spiritual darkness. They've not heard from heaven. And in that time of spiritual darkness, 400 years later, God sends a beam in light. <laughs> Can you imagine? Having existed in a spiritual drought like that and yearning for those who were true remnants of, 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 this, of the seed of Abraham, those 
who were Abraham's children because they believed in God, they trusted in God. Sure, the circumstances looked bleak and gloomy, but they knew in their heart that the God that made the promise to Adam and Eve and later to Abraham, He is a God who preserves His promises. And then the Gospel of Luke gives us the first occurrence whereby God would speak from heaven. I laid somewhat of a foundation as I began to introduce chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke, but I want to take you back now because it's 400 years later. The location is the city of Jerusalem. More specifically, the, the rebuilt, and I mean really rebuilt, refurbished, glorious temple of Herod the Great that he had built this magnificent temple for the Jews to appease them. And it's in that temple that we focus our attention in verse 5. As the story unfolds now, because now we have seen that God has preserved His promise down through the years, I want you to see now where the first word from God is, is basically, not only has my promise been preserved, but I am a God who answers prayer. In verse 5, there was, there was in the days of Herod the Great, we know in Matthew chapter 2 exactly who that is, the, the very Herod that, that was king of Judah who would try to destroy the baby Jesus. The king of Judah, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron and her name was Elizabeth. By the way, her name meant my God is an oath. In verse 6, And they were both righteous before God walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord blameless Paul's, I told you, they're part of the remnant. They're part of those who still had a heart of faith towards God. They were in the minority, but they were there. They were, they were righteous. They were walking in the commandments. They were blameless in God's sight according to His ordinances. But, in verse 7, but... And that's why Luke tells us these details because he says, I'm going to say something that is very important for you to remember that they are righteous and they're blameless. They're faithful, but they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and they were both well advanced in age. Hmm. Heard that before, haven't we? In our study in the Genesis, we knew that Abraham was, what, a hundred years when his son was finally born? And, and Sarah was getting on up there too. But it's not, you know, isn't, isn't that interesting? Because you see, there was a social and religious stigmatism attached to a barren woman because her, she was not able to bear forth a son to carry on the name. And in that culture, in that time, it was very important. It doesn't carry that kind of weight today, but in that culture, that meant a lot. It meant a lot to Abraham. He's supposed to be a nation, had no child, and yet God had promised him a son. God delivered. We know that, that in the case of Isaac and Rebekah, Rebekah was barren. Isaac prayed. And God blessed her. We know that in the case of Samuel's mother, Hannah, she was barren. <coughs> she was a faithful woman of God, and she prayed, and God blessed her. We know that Samson's parents owned up in age. She was barren, and they were praying, and God heard their prayer. And Zacharias and Elizabeth were trusting God even through the, the burden that they were under. Verse 8, So it was that while he was serving as priest before God in the order of his division, 
According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot failed to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Now, you and I look at verse 8 and 9, we say, ho-hum. So he was serving in the church. That's his job. Folks, you understand, there were so many priests. The numbers were so great that they drew lots to see who would have this wonderful, glorious privilege of burning the incense on the altar of prayer in the portion of the temple, the inner part of the temple, just outside of the Holy of Holies. And of course, you know from the Scriptures, there's only one person that goes behind the curtains of the Holy of Holies, and that's only on the Day of Atonement, and he's the high priest. But his turn came. It's a once-in-a-lifetime experience. A once-in-a-lifetime experience. I remember when I was at a conference over in Greensboro at the uh, Curry Convention Center. It was in October, maybe three years ago. I, I, but anyway, it was about 400 pastors. We'd been invited to come up to a Mike Huckabee, you know, Governor Mike Huckabee rally. And, and so we were all there and then, you know, singing and, and giving, you know, all that listening to speeches and everything. And, and, and Governor Huckabee says, oh, by the way, he says, put your name tags in this big fishbowl and we're going to draw a name at the end of the conference. And so I tossed mine over in there. And, and, and of all times, there was two Charlie Martins who were pastors in North Carolina in, in the conference. I sat with, one, with my namesake. He's at Bethel Baptist up in the mountains. Well, as God would work it, he left. <laughs> I had almost forgotten that Huck, Governor Huckabee said we're going to do a drawing at the end of the conference. And so, so at the end of the conference, and just as we were getting ready to do the benediction, he said, bring that fishbowl out here. He said, I'm going to draw a name out of this bowl. It's like I said, about 400 pastors, you know. And he says, whoever's name I draw, uh, they'll get an expense paid trip to go with me, my wife, and a group of pastors. And we're going to tour through uh, uh, Poland, and then back to England, and then back to the Ronald Reagan Library in California. And I thought, man, yeah, that, that'd be nice. <laughs> so, you know the story. And, and so, they, the guy stands up there, and he reaches out, Charlie Martin, Cornerstone Baptist, Winston-Salem. And I'm like, you know, I used to make fun of these people on The Price is Right. <laughs> An expense paid trip to tour Europe to these sites like where, you know, Pope John Paul uh, was in Poland and, and to see and, and to tour these temples and, and, and the cathedrals and to go to London and go to Winston Churchill's headquarters during the war and, and to go to his, to his birthplace, the, the palace where he was born, have lunch and to eat like a king, to travel first class and, and to finally go to the Ronald Reagan Library and to have be entertained as the special guest and I once in a lifetime experience. Hey, listen, when the lot fell for Zacharias and they were all standing around, Zacharias, it's your turn. What? And he gets to go in and to do this thing, burn the incense on the prayer altar just outside of the Holy of Holies. He'd never been in that closer proximity to the presence of God at least symbolically, though God was always with him. And folks, I want you to remember something. God is an on-time God. Nothing happens coincidentally with God. For 400 years, He hasn't spoken. With all the thousands of priests, Zacharias is the one. And this is the day that Zacharias would be almost inches away, maybe feet away from the very 
holy of holies of God. And understand that God is Jehovah Jireh who provides what we need when we need need it. And so look at verse 9. According to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside. This included the people, the rest of the priests, at the hour of incense, which is the hour of prayer, out in the courtyard. They're praying. In verse 11, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And folks, this is how angels typically arrive. I know in the book of Daniel, it describes back in Daniel chapter 8, when Daniel was on the riverside and God had given him a vision. They're in captivity and, and, and Daniel was praying for his people and God gave him a vision of things to come. And, and Daniel couldn't interpret it and he asked, God, help me. And then the Bible tells us that suddenly there was a man standing in front of him uh, and, and, and this man had a, possessed an appearance and a nature so much so that, that Daniel says, I fell down my face to the ground and I was asleep. Martin translation, he fainted. Imagine Zacharias got his incense little urn there. He's turning to the altar to, you know, it's just him. Nobody else could get in there. So he's turning. He knows it's just him. He turns and boom, standing before him is this glorious being in the form of a man, he knows this has got to be an angel of God. He'd read the Old Testament. He'd read the Old Testament manifestations of how angels came in the form of man to Abraham and to others. And the angel stood on the right hand of the altar of incense. And when Zacharias saw him, he was troubled. I'd say he was troubled. He was shaken like a leaf. And, he, and fear fell upon him. That's kind of what people do. But the angel said, do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer. Did you get that? Don't be afraid, Zacharias. God's heard your prayer. He's preserved his promise, buddy. But he has heard your faithful prayer. What has Zacharias been praying for? I believe first and foremost, he and Elizabeth been praying for a boy. But also because of his faithfulness to God and because of his deep love for the people of God, I believe he's been praying that God would bring the Messiah. Oh, God, would this be the generation? Would this be the time that you'll send the blessed Messiah? And guess what? God's answering both of them. Because he says, for your prayer is heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. How about that? When you had your children and you gave them names, did God send an angel and say, name him Charlie. <laughs> In verse 14, and you will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth. For he, well, now, now he's moving into an area a prophecy here. Before we jump to that, let's just remind ourselves. Here's Zacharias. He's back there at the altar of prayer doing the incense thing. But, but when you encounter an angel and you're having a dialogue with an angel and the an angel's giving you the word of God and telling you and pronouncing you what God has intended to do, you don't kind of like, hey, uh, could, you, could you speed it up there, buddy? I, I got to get back out. Everybody's expecting me to come out because typically this was a short ritual. They went in, lit the, the, the incense, at the altar, and they were ex, and then they led the people in a benediction. The people are waiting. Where's Zechariah? I hope something's 
Sometimes, if a priest was delayed, they thought, well, God probably zapped him. He forgot to say the right words. He didn't practice the right ritual. They're wondering. And so he comes out and, and of course, rejoins the people. So Zacharias, I want you to see his response. But in verse 15, he says, For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Speaking of Zacharias and Elizabeth's son, we know him as John the Baptist. And shall not drink neither wine nor strong drink, which is a Nazarite vow, something similar to what Samson was supposed to follow as being set apart by God. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And we'll see that played out later in the Gospel of Luke, talking about John the Baptist. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will also go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children. Whom? Where have we heard that? We just read it in Malachi. And Gabriel is quoting the promise. The forerunner to the Messiah, John the Baptist. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah, not only are you going to have a boy, but let me tell you something. He's going to be the forerunner of the Messiah. He's going to be the proclaimer of the promised coming Messiah. He will have such divine spirit power, he will turn the people back to God. And even healing families in the meantime. Wow! And, and have you ever put your foot in your mouth? Now, you don't need to raise your hand. Just raise your foot. But, but, but have you ever said something and then right away you say, oh my goodness. I wish I could take that back. <laughs> Zechariah, just being honest. In verse 18, Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm old, I'm an old man, and my wife is well in, advanced in, in years. Kind of like Abraham is kind of Challenging God. Yeah, you say I'm going to have a nation. Uh, we're, my wife's barren. I'm old. But, but Zechariah's standing before the angel of the Lord. And he says, how can I be sure? Wrong answer. Folks, I'll just give you a clue. If the angel of the Lord shows up at your house and he tells you something God said to do or just wants you to know, don't ask. How do I know this is true? <laughs> Because the angel would strike him speechless, literally. Well, look at listen to the answer of the angel, verse 19. And the angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel. Dude, do you read the book of Daniel? Who do you think stood before Daniel? Who do you think is a mighty messenger of God? He said, I talked to Daniel 500 years ago and here I'm standing. He says, I am Gabriel who, look what he says, who stands in the presence of God. He says, you little, you're just standing in front of a curtain that represents God. Do you understand that I am the special creature of God, eternal and all and powerful? And he says, hey, I just left the very presence of Jehovah. And I'm standing here talking to you and you're asking me, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, how can I know what you're saying is true? I was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings, but, and it's not a good thing when the angel of the Lord, a great and mighty angel says to you, but, 
Behold, you, would, you will be mute. I know we get buttons. We can mute everything. Hey, Gabriel didn't need a mute button. He just said, on behalf of God, you're not going to speak again. At least for a while. You're not going to speak until the days of these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their own time. He said, man, how could Zacharias be so dumb? How could he just hear God's word and then ask, how can I know this is true? Well, how many of you have gone to the word of God and God has put a promise out before you? And we dare say to God, well, yeah, yeah that, that, that sounds good. That sounds great, reasonable. That sounds what I, but how can I know this is true? Get back. Telling a preacher to be mute. It's like telling a racehorse you can't run. So my heart goes out to Zechariah. <laughs> okay, we've got to move along. In verse 20, And the people waited for Zechariah, and they marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. They're wondering, what in the world's going on? Zechariah should have been out here a long time ago. I hope something terrible hasn't happened. But when he came out, verse 22, he could not speak to them. Duh. <laughs> and they perceived that he had seen a vision in the temple, for he beckoned to them and remained speechless. You know, I don't know how many of y'all ever played gestures, you know, where you have to act out, you know, different things and try to get people to guess. Try to be Zechariah. After you come out of the, you know, the, the, the temple of the Lord, the holy section, burning the incense, and, and try to describe to this people who are already perturbed because you're making them late, how you've seen an angel. I guess you just start off by waving your hands. But they knew he had seen, they knew he had had an encounter in verse 23, and so it was, as soon as the days of his service was completed, that he departed to his own house. Now mind you, Elizabeth didn't go to town with him. She's back home. She's oblivious to all of this going on. So if you think it's difficult to explain to a waiting multitude what has happened to you in the inner part of the temple of God and encountering an angel, and God pronounces to you that you're going to have a son, and though, though you're old and you've been barren all these years, try to do that, gentlemen, to your wife without speaking a word. <laughs> I imagine he did a lot of writing. Verse 24. Now after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived and she hid herself five months. Why? Listen, if you're on up in age and you've been barren all these years and all of a sudden you take the pregnancy test, so ooh, you still have my beating heart. You don't just run out at that point, when you're at high risk or whatever, you know, typically a woman will want to, particularly in her situation, want to be reserved. And just wait. Well, five months, I, 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 I don't, I'm like that slave girl in Gone with the Wind, said to Miss Scarlett, Lord, Miss Scarlett, I don't know nothing about birth and no babies. I, I'm imagining by five months, a lady is starting to show. And she's confirmed now. She's feeling comfortable. Yeah, hey, this is a real deal. I'm going to have a baby. And so she goes out. Look at verse 25. Thus the Lord is... As she, she, she went out among the people. She said, Thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when you looked on me to take away my reproach among men. Wow. What a dramatic opening to a gospel. We serve an awesome God, folks. He is the only true God. He's the one who has written the story from beginning to end. And we're in the middle. 
I believe everything that God's word tells me transpired from Genesis to Malachi. I believe it with all my heart that it is historically accurate. But I also believe everything that comes after that from Luke or, or Matthew to the last verse of Revelation. Because it's God's story. And He is the God who is able to preserve promises that He gives to you and I. And I'm not going to enumerate all the promises of God, but we know one promise. Jesus said, I'm coming again. I'm coming again. I prepare a place for you and where I go, I will come again and there you will be with me. God is a God who preserves His promises he is a God who answers the prayers of His people. And He is a God who fulfills His prophecy. And we will see this theme played over and over in the life of John the Baptist, but then more eminently and preeminently in the life of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. I hope I've whetted your appetite just a little bit because we're about to embark upon a biblical journey that makes the greatest Hollywood production look dull. And I invite you to walk along with me. And the theme of the Gospel of Luke is simply this. Jesus says, follow me. Follow me.